if you were following along with Roger earlier in Psalm 27, you may know that I will be talking about fear this morning. And it's a topic I know well. Uh, ever since Pastor Adam uh, shared with me that I would be preaching on Psalm 27, I wouldn't say I've been gripped with fear, but it's been an integral part of my life. Here is my fear. My fear is that I'll come up this morning, we will read through Psalm 27 together, I will share with you all that I have learned over the last three months pouring over this psalm, I'll close in prayer and Doug will come up and try to figure out what to do with the remaining 45 minutes of the service. <laughs> but as we found out last week, there's at least one person, Hazel Osborne, uh, her philosophy is that a shorter sermon is a better sermon. So hopefully a few of you will agree with that. Um, here's, I, I'm just trying to figure out how to stretch what I have to fill this time slot. And I thought, well, the book of Psalms we've been learning is a songbook. You could call it the Hebrew hymnal. Tim Mapes, three weeks ago, came up. He had Psalm 8. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so he came up and he sang that famous Michael W. Smith song. And he sang it at the beginning. You know, the congregation joined in. He sang it at the close. And I was thinking, man, if I can find a song from Psalm 27, <laughs> then if I sing really slow, if we sing really slow, then Doug only has to deal with like, you know, 38 minutes. But, try as I may, I found no Michael W. Smith song with the words, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh. It's just not out there. Trust me, I looked. My problem with teaching from the Psalms is that it's poetry. And aside from my, my favorite poet, 20th century poet, Theodore Geisel. Anyone familiar with his work? Dr. Seuss. As aside from a good Dr. Seuss book, my brain is not wired for poetry, okay? I'm a concrete thinker. You know, I, I need historical events, real people, real places. And, you know, you look at the book of Acts and you're seeing all this great stuff of how the church was being formed and built and all the great things the Spirit was doing. Wow, that's some great stuff to teach. You know, the Old Testament history of, uh, of the Israelites, that's great stuff to teach. And even Jesus, yeah, he told some parables, and those are stories. They're not, you know, factual accounts, but at least they're relatable, you know. And I probably would have been right along with the disciples after the crowds leave, going over to Jesus. Hey, could you explain that parable again? You know, I, I, I didn't quite get it. I would have been right there with them. I just don't get symbolism sometimes. And so to try to figure out what some of these verses mean, just really, really, I, I struggle with in the Psalms. But um, here we are, Psalm 27. I have no Michael W. Smith song for us to sing. Like Terry last week, I have no fluffy sheep. I have no green pastures and no quiet waters. I have when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh. So 
what's the best thing to do in a situation like this? Oh, we're getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> best thing for me to do is to pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Um, even the things that are hard to understand, Lord, you have something for us this morning, and I pray that you would show us uh, in your word how we can be drawn closer to you, how we can serve you better. Show us, Lord, through these verses how you love us and how you want to take care of us and provide for us. I thank you, Lord, for David's life experiences that he was able to write these things down to encourage us and to strengthen us. And we thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at verse 1. As we saw it earlier, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Question, what were Americans afraid of in the year 1975? What were Americans afraid of in 1975? And it was not the upcoming presidency of Jimmy Carter. That was 1976. They were fearing that. Uh, in 1975, we were afraid of a very large shark. Jaws, the movie Jaws came out in 1975 and people spent $482 million to get scared. They laid down their $2 on the counter, got a ticket to be afraid and to fear a shark. And why? Who looks forward to being afraid? Have you ever heard anyone exclaim, I can't wait to live in fear? Generally speaking, people want to feel safe. People want to feel secure. Even so, Steven Spielberg spent $9 million and 149 days 100 days longer than he was scheduled to film this movie, 159 days he spent to make us fear a shark and to make us afraid. And why? For theater, for entertainment. None of it was real. The shark was not even real. It was a robot. The big shark in Jaws was a robotic thing that covered with rubber and it actually didn't work half the time because the salt water affected the electronics and loused things all up thus the 159 days of shooting time uh, but it wasn't real so with that in mind let's start again at verse one and read through verse six the lord is my light and my salvation whom shall i fear the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. 
though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. So a month or so ago, Pastor Adam asked me for the title of uh, my message today, and I will be the first to say, my mutterings up here deserve no title. But he asked for it, uh, and taking a cue from Dr. Seuss, if Dr. Seuss taught me anything, he taught me that alliteration is funny. So my title this morning is Ping Pong Peril and Praise. We see this constant back and forth across the table, back and forth over the net. We have light and salvation. We have fear. We have God is my stronghold. We have afraid. We have God gives me sure footing, followed by evildoers, adversaries, and foes. We have David's confidence in the Lord, and we have armies and war. It's this constant volley back and forth across the net, and unfortunately, David is the ping pong ball. In the movie Jaws, this was all fiction. It wasn't real. It was the work of author Peter Benchley and director Steven Spielberg. It was a work of fiction. And while Psalm 27 is poetry, it's a song, it is written from David's real life experiences. David lived a troubled life and no matter where he went, trouble just seemed to follow him. David is reliving with some high points and low points of his life um, just how tough life can be. And, you know, I sort of think, well, how, how tough could life be? You know, send Abner with the Reubenites and the Gadites and the, the, the uh, you know, whatever, half tribe of Manasseh, get them out there and take care of the Philistines. But, you know, it's just not that easy. Um, even as a king, David had problems. David had trouble. And a study of the Old Testament or even just a quick Google search can find you a whole list of the enemies of David, starting with King Saul. Uh, Goliath, of course, all his friends, the Philistines, Moabites, Syrians, Arameans, Edomites, and even his son Absalom. It's important to remember that these biblical accounts are real people. You know, the stories of David in uh, 1 Samuel, some of those things that we read about, or all of those things that we read about are real people, real events, real problems, for David, they were real stress and real reasons for him to have fear. We all know the familiar story of David and Goliath. 
and it becomes familiar after a while. Now, I know very little to nothing about social media, but aren't you glad that David didn't have Snapchat? If David had Snapchat, he could have taken a selfie of him standing on top of Goliath, and we would have gotten the big players. You know, we would have gotten young boy David, Goliath, maybe his sling slung over his shoulder, a few stones left in it, and he's standing on a dead giant. But that's just the highlights. When you read the scriptures, you can find so much more if you read the whole thing. Um, and not just trying to remember off the top of your head what the highlights or the big names in a, a, a passage were. A mere recollection will not help you remember the fear and dread and hopelessness in the Israelite camp. Remember, this had been going on. This taunting of Goliath had been going on for 40 days. 40 days Goliath was taunting the Israelites. It wouldn't capture the sun shining off the freshly sharpened edges of Goliath's spear or the thousand or so spears behind him being held by all of the Philistines. These were real, serious problems that David was up against. And if you don't really search the scripture, you don't find out why David has the courage to go up against Goliath. If we take a look at 1 Samuel 17, I'm going to start at verse 33, but by this time, David has already seen and heard the taunting of Goliath, and he's gone to Saul to tell him that he wants to go up against Goliath in battle. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. We see in this passage David facing a huge challenge. He looks back at God's faithfulness to him in the past, and then confidently he moves forward in faith rather than in fear. And isn't that what we see throughout Psalm 27? David's ping-pong peril and praise is David in danger and God's deliverance. David's need followed by God's provision. David's impossible situation 
God's faithfulness, and because of that, David has confidence. Confidence that God will meet his needs. Confidence that God will deliver him. Confidence that God is who he says he is. And we can see a glimpse of this as David continues. We're going to pick up in verse 7. But he shifts his focus a little bit from the past to the present. His present. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. In verses 1 through 6, David is recalling the past, reliving his high points and low points of his life. Here, in these verses, David is looking at the present state of his relationship with God. David is not wanting God to simply be a lucky rabbit's foot in his pocket that he pulls out in times of need. He wants God to be an ever-present presence in his life. I'm speaking to you, God, he's saying. He says, I'm seeking you. And David is telling his fellow Israelites in this psalm that even though human relationships fail, God's love is unfailing. David had fallout with his brother Eliab in 1 Samuel, you know, during that uh, uh, encounter before his encounter with Goliath. Eliab gave him some heat. King Saul, shortly after the account of David and Goliath, King Saul turns on David. His wife, Michal, after David takes to the streets to praise God, she turns on him. And as I said before, his son Absalom, who tried to overthrow David for the kingdom. So David knew that human relationships fail, but God's love is unfailing. And even though God's love is unfailing, David is still working on his relationship with God, crying out to him, seeking him, inquiring of him, asking God to teach me, teach me your way, O Lord. He's offering sacrifices to him, worshiping him, praising him. And verse 11 again, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. When our daughter, Kirsten, was 11 years old, she and I found out about a a really cool fundraising um, activity that we could do 
she was going to be raising money for the American Diabetes Association. And if she raised enough money, we could go on a bike ride up in Watkins Glen. And they had different length rides. And I sort of challenged her, you know, hey, I think we can do the 35 miler. What do you think? Now, she had the longest ride she'd ever done at that point was a 16 mile ride. But we had several months to train. So I figured, yeah, let, let's try this. And uh, a couple of weeks later, we found out that the first seven miles of this bike trip, you gain 1,300 feet. So by the time we get to the seven mile point, we're going to be whooped. But hey, let's train. And she was into it. You know, we, we started training more and more. And we thought the most realistic way to train for this is to tackle a hill. And so since we lived in Liberty, not far from uh, Old Route 15, we would ride our bikes from our house to Old 15 and straight up Bloss Mountain. Get to the top, ride down into Blossburg, get some Dippin' Dots and a Gatorade. Sometimes we'd go all the way to Mansfield, you know, as the days got longer and we had a little more daylight, we'd go all the way to Mansfield, turn around and then hit Bloss Mountain again which was even worse from the Blossburg side, all the way up, then all the way down. Those uphill rides were horrible. <laughs> Our legs were burning by the time we're halfway up. And how in the world are we going to get to the top? But, you know, we, we would make it. Um, and you would think the downhills, oh, they're a piece of cake. Well, not with my daughter in the lead. She would take those downhills very aggressively. And if you've ever seen the potholes on Old 15, they could swallow an 11-year-old like that. Um, not to mention, if you hear Ken Davis on the radio on FLN, uh, he's known for saying that uh, bicycle riding at that speed downhill, you are only one acorn away from death. So I personally know the appeal of a level path, as David talks about here. A level path offers the opportunity for momentum. Once you build up to your, your speed that you want to be at, 20 miles an hour, 15 miles an hour, whatever, once you get up to that speed, it's easy. All you're doing is a couple pumps here and there just to maintain your velocity. The weight, your weight, and the bicycle's weight, and the narrow tires on those road bikes, whew, you just, it's easy then. You're just gliding, gliding. A level path offers momentum. David, in speaking about this level path, I think he's telling us he wants to keep his relationship with God going. Even when things are going well, not having the, the task of starting up after he stopped. You know, if he walks away from God during the good times, and then, hey, I need you, God. Then he's got to start that relationship all back up. No, he wants a level path. He wants a continuous, everyday relationship with his Savior, with his God. No starting and stopping as life circumstances change. David wants God to teach him and lead him on a level path so there is nothing to hinder him as he follows the Lord. And I kind of thought this sounds a lot like Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. 
a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It was interesting to do some research on this passage and find out that this actually was a custom of kings, leaders, dignitaries. If they had a long route to travel, they would actually send out engineers, construction crews to go out and literally clear a path for this kingly procession or this group of nobles that had to come through. Uh, it talks about uh, make, a, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. They would go out and literally knock down sand dunes so that this caravan of important people wouldn't have to slow down to go up these. Uh, they could just set the cruise control on the camel for four miles an hour and just go, go, go. David wanted the same thing in his relationship with God. He wanted an uncluttered, unencumbered, unobstructed, level path right from God to his heart. Verses 13 and 14 of our psalm. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. David now looks to the future and he encourages Israel. Remember, this is the Hebrew hymnal. You know, this is, these are songs that maybe at corporate events or, or, you know, public events, they would sing some of these psalms together. Perhaps this is a psalm that the army would sing on the way to battle or a mother and father during captivity singing to their children. He's encouraging Israel to wait. God's help may take time, but take courage. This is a call from David for Israel to persevere. And remember, David's problems with Saul, those lasted years. So David knew a little about perseverance. Just as David trusted God, he wanted them to know that Israel could trust God too. And as they sang this song, they would remember that. So what does this psalm mean to us, the Christian church today? The movie Jaws was a story. A work of fiction brought to life by a director with the intention to make us afraid. 
And today we have an enemy who does the same thing, and he's been doing it since the Garden of Eden. Think of the words that Adam used when God searched for him in the garden. Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. We were created by God to be in relationship with him. Fear separates us in our relationship with God. If we're living in fear, we're not trusting him. Just like David did, we too can remember our peril and praise moments. We've all had relationships that have failed. We've all experienced that. We've all had close relatives who have passed away. We've all had stress at work, some of us worse than others. Some losing jobs. But we can also look back at those peril moments and remember how God comforted us. How the church, God worked through the church, through fellow believers, to take care of our needs. We've seen God's faithfulness in our lives in the past, and those can become our prayers to strengthen our reliance on God so that we can trust him, seek him, we can praise him, and during our time of trial, we can be reminded to wait on him. And you remember the level path in verse 11, and also as we read Isaiah 40. Those words from Isaiah 40 are quoted in the book of Matthew in reference to John the Baptist as he prepared the way of the Lord. John the Baptist was straightening the path for the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to the people of Israel. Now I'm talking to people this morning, some who have been Christians probably most of their lives, some maybe just a short time, a couple of years or even months. And I'm probably talking to some people who have never made that decision to trust God in their heart. But any of us and every one of us should ask, does God have a clear, uncluttered, unencumbered, unobstructed level path to my heart? Are there things, are there obstacles that I need to clear? Are there valleys that need to be brought up and hills that need to be brought down for God to come to me? He's there and he wants a relationship with you. And if you have a relationship with him right now, he wants it to be even better. And so this message is for all of us.